You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You should know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Welcome back to the show, everybody. This is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for downloading another episode of the show. Uh, just wanted to say, if you listened to our last episode about the Wolfman, that was part of a big crossover. Uh, a number of shows on our network. If you go to ChristianHumanist.org, you'll find the uh, links to all the other shows. The Christian Feminist Podcast did. The City of Man did. Book of Nature, as well as the Christian Humanist Podcast. They each did a different universal monster. So if you enjoyed our Wolfman episode, don't forget to take a few minutes and go back and listen to those other shows. They complement each other quite well. And uh, I just want to say a couple of things about this upcoming episode. This was a live recording at a comic conference that we have here. It's the second annual conference here at Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. Uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Jess Jose Costanzo, and her comic book club uh, throw this charity comic book conference every year. And this year, I hosted a panel about horror, so we're not quite ready to let go of Halloween yet. So this will be a show about it and Stranger Things and children and horror and generally. I think you're going to enjoy it. It was a really awesome conversation with Wayne Wise, um, which I had a great time taking part of, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Uh, before we get to the show, though, I just want to uh, once again uh, direct you to try out another podcast outside of our network, but it's still awesome. It's called Life Together, and it's a podcast from a group of Christians you may not have heard about, the Bruderhof. If you listen to my show about them, you have heard about them, though. They live in intentional communities modeled after the early church and the early Anabaptists. They publish a magazine called Plow Quarterly, and I've had their editor, Peter Mumpson, from New York on my show before. Peter is a co-host of Life Together, along with Bernard Hibbs, who lives in England, and Marianne Wright, who lives not far from me here in PA. I really do love the Life Together podcast. It covers a blind spot that's missed in our divided left-right evangelical progressive paradigms of faith and culture and politics. So do yourself a favor. Check out Life Together. They're on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. New episodes every Friday. Life Together, faith, culture, and community from the Bruderhof and Plow. Okay, well, thanks, everybody, for uh, coming to our first panel of the uh, 2017 
Charity Con here at Mount Aloysius College. Um, this is a panel about it and Stranger Things and generally kind of children in horror. Um, just so you guys in the audience here know, I'm also recording this for a podcast that I'm going to release later <laughs> uh, with Wayne. So if you guys want to uh, say something, uh, know that it, it will be recorded. If you don't want me to use it, by all means, tell me to not use it. So, um, But we hope to do have some uh, question and answer time here at the end of this. Um, the podcast is called The Sectarian Review, by the way. I guess I should give a plug when I can. Um, so joining me today is Wayne Wise. Uh, Wayne is a, uh, a, a comic aficionado, academic entrepreneur, board member. Uh, Wayne. <laughs> Writer, artist. Yeah, why don't you, why don't Master you tell of us? None. <laughs> why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Wayne? Um, I, yeah, I'm Wayne. I live in Pittsburgh. Uh, I work at Phantom of the Attic Comics for my real job, which is uh, a comic shop that's been around since 1983. Um, one of the, the bigger ones in the country, just purely in terms of amount of stuff we move for a single store. Um, I, I write, I draw, I've always done some comics. I did some professional inking in the 90s. Uh, in 1993, Peter Laird, who is co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and a multi-gazillionaire, started the Zurich Foundation where he gave grant money to self-publishers. A friend and I got the very first one in 1993 for a book called Great Legacy. Uh, so any of you who were buying Turtles toys in 1993, thank you for the several thousand dollars. Uh, <laughs> um, I kind of fell into the academia thing through a back channel. I teach class on comics and pop culture at Chatham University occasionally whenever they can get the adjunct money for it. I'm on the board at the Pittsburgh Museum, which is one of a very small handful of museums in the country dedicated to comics and cartooning. Um, I This is a novel of mine. It was published by a now-defunct small press publisher in 2002. I have since joined the self-publishing revolution. It's available on Kindle and... Uh, hard copy through Amazon. Uh, and this is a horror novel that fits very well into the topic we're talking about this morning, which I guess is why I'm here. Yeah, yeah. I want to get. I'll, I'll get to the book at the end. I do want to. Yeah. I, I do want to talk about it because shameless plug number one. <laughs> Life is nothing but shameless plugs. Get over that. Um, but the uh, uh, the theme the themes of this book are very much related to what we see in it and Stranger Things and, and the subject that we're talking about today. I do want you to dwell a little bit more on the Tunesium. I was in Pittsburgh just incidentally years ago one day. One wandering around the city for a few hours and I stumbled across this awesome little archive of like Steve Ditko's original artwork and, and really interesting stuff. Could you tell us a little bit about yeah, it? Yeah, it, uh, this is our 10th year in existence. It started out literally as a hallway at the Children's Museum. The founder was uh, Joe Woes, who's a local cartoonist. It grew into a nonprofit organization. Uh, we have a location in downtown Pittsburgh on Liberty Avenue. It's right across the street from the August Wilson Center. And have various shows, uh, comic strips and animation, comic book art. Uh, we have contacts with a lot of collectors. We're moving toward a more educational model. We have workshops on teaching kids to draw. I do workshops and, and panels on various topics. Uh, we have a Wonder Woman show coming up in November, some original art. Uh, I have a presentation on the history that I do, and there's be some other activities. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's been ongoing for a while now. Yeah, it's really, a, it was really cool uh, and such a happy accident in my life. And I've always remembered it. So, um, well, let's get to the topic today. We're talking about children in horror and generally, uh, generally speaking, um, but specifically focused on Stranger Things and It. Now, those two franchises are kind of interrelated because Stranger Things is utterly indebted to It, right? When you watch Stranger Absolutely. Things, you can't ignore the influence that It specifically, but Stephen King in general, has. And I find that the new movie is really interesting in that it 
regurgitate Stranger Things <laughs> aesthetic back into it. Uh, and so even to the point of casting one of the uh, the main stars of Stranger Things is now one of the, the children mm-hmm. in it. And so um, I, it seems to me that Stephen King himself is central to this uh, trope of children in horror. But let's, let's push it back. You, uh, in our pre- conversations here uh, mentioned there is some more backstory there what are some more um, uh, what's some more in-depth reading of children than horror yeah, I, I think and this is just me brainstorming for the past few days through our conversations and I did when I was I was working on this as well I think there's um, I don't know if it's a purely American tradition or not but there seems to be this idea of children as possessing a special knowledge that adults don't have they see the world in different ways and I think that plays into this. I, I think that's it is a coming of age story as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. And I think there's that that transition of you know all of our fears are built when we're children. So horror comes out of what's under the bed when we're six years old. And as you grow up and become an adult, logic kicks in and you stop believing that thing under the bed. And I think part of the essence of these stories is you become an adult, you don't see these things anymore. Doesn't mean they're not there. It's just you need that explanation that rational explanation for it. So because of that, you don't see it and you don't experience it. Yeah. And so like children are more like, Oh, I guess willing to believe in something like the supernatural, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas adults just by living on the earth long enough and being consumed by capitalism uh, have uh, like become utterly rational, right? Yeah. And in most of these stories, the adults are not necessarily willing to believe the things that children are willing to believe. And so uh, I think that there's some, they have some access to some magic that we have lost just yeah. by being adults, right? And that's what makes them really compelling stories. And I, I think we believe that, that idea of the magical child. Um, there's, okay, this is going to sound, in, in uh, Jungian psychology, there's the idea, and forgive my Latin, the puer eternus, the eternal child. And the idea, you know, Parsifal in the King Arthur myths is is that. It's that idea of, it is only through your innocence that you're allowed to combat these evil things. Um, and that loss of innocence, that coming of age thing is an essential part of these stories. And they say the literary tradition, you know, I mentioned in the thing, I think Tom Sawyer, you know, it's not a horror novel, but we have Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn in a cave trying to cast a magic spell with a dead cat to get rid of warts. Right. And they confront Injun Joe, who is in the dark and it's scary and it's frightening and the adults in the town don't seem to see this. So it's up to the children to to defeat this evil thing in their town. And while not supernatural, I think that's very definitely an American literary precedent for things that came after that. Yeah, for sure. So uh, let's go into the like the history of this if we can. Um, like I'm going all the way back to fairy tales, right? Yeah. The like the fairy tales are all built on children. Not all, I suppose, but getting lost in the woods. Yeah, getting lost in the woods, right? They're out of the grid of civilization. And so therefore they're more in tune with this more kind of uh, pre-civilized form of nature. And they have this uh, encounters, these encounters with witches and and werewolves and all these things. Um, And what's interesting, I want to talk about the way children in Stephen King inspired children's stories are put in utter peril. Like that's one thing that I think he, he goes places that most people don't go when, when talking about children, right? Um, but in some ways he's drawing on the true traditions of these fairy tales, which are really dark and violent. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. And I, I think the fairy tales were also, you know, they're cautionary tales. They are, you tell your children not to do these things to go in the woods because I mean, re- the reality is a wolf could eat you. Uh, that, that was true back then, but they're also cautionary tales, you know, horror, horror, 
the horror genre, I think by its nature, for all the violence and whatever, is essentially conservative in its nature. It's yeah. telling you fit in or you will die. Don't don't break the rules or you will die. So it's it's teaching children to grow up and be part of the community and don't step off that path because there are evil things out in the woods. Yeah. Um, and I, I think and I think the change that started happening with Stephen King is rather than you will die is these kids become the heroes. There's a certain amount of the coming of age, finding your your personal identity. That's where the strength comes from, not only with yourself, but with that community of other kids. You mentioned that in one of the emails, that unity of yeah. of kids working together. Yeah. Yeah. Outside of the kind of restrictions of adulthood. Right. Um, and this is one thing this seems to be I want I think that this what we're talking about today is utterly a creation of the 80s. I mean, you're right to say, and you're going to have some interesting yeah. things to say, that there are precedents um, before the 80s. But in the 80s, there was something. Yeah, no, and, I, and I agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, I think it changed in the 80s because of things like Stephen King's books and Steven Spielberg's movies. Yeah. Uh, a lot, which you know, Stranger Things is just a marriage of those two ideas. Yeah, it totally is. Um, and so as a, a child of the 80s myself, um, I, I think back to those times. And when I watch Stranger Things and it, it reminds me of my childhood. We would get on our bikes and be gone all day. Our parents had no idea where we were. We were doing things that were dangerous, right? Um, Something that today's society would never like allow, like uh, people put tracking devices on their children's cell phones, right? So they know where they are at all moment, every, any given moment. Ah, Charlie gets eaten by a clown. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, he's in the sewer again. <laughs> but uh, but uh, there is some. There was something more wild west if you will about yeah. the 80s yeah. there was less of a of a of a fear i think of of life and we were able to experience i think things that today i don't think kids are able to experience this is me being andy rooney get off my lawn <laughs> i know but um, but uh, uh but anyway let's let's talk about the before the before we get to the 80s though you mentioned scooby-doo which i love Scooby. yeah scooby so. i even you go back to you know, the, the, the kids' books like Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. They were mysteries, but it was, you know, young people investigating mysteries and, and coming into conflict with, you know, bad people and, and mis you know, scary stuff. And I, Scooby Doo, I think, you know, they're, they're teenagers. And I think with that, like, you know, with Scooby Doo, the essence is, here's this monster. Oh no, it's, it's old Mr. Jenkins in a mask. You know, <laughs> it, it's not actually a monster. And I think that's significant. They are all teenagers. Yeah. So it's once again that coming of age thing. We have we have Shaggy, who is the most id-driven, childlike member of the crew, who believes everything. You know, the monsters are all real. We have Velma, who is the most adult, rational one of the bunch, who always believes it's there's a rational explanation behind this, and she's always right. So there's that that say that coming of age, that growing out of that childhood belief into the more rational adult world. But it was a group of kids who were confronting monsters every Saturday morning. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and, but to say, I, I do think, say, that definitely changed with the, the 80s stuff. Right. Because even then, it is always, you know, a, a greedy farmer in a mask, right? That it's not really a monster until now these more recent Scooby Doo stories have brought the actual supernatural. Yeah. Into they them. teamed up with Kiss recently and there were <laughs> alternate universes. And yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, my kids love these. No small part because of me. I make them watch it, and they, they've come to love it. And so I, I am kind of shamefully up on Scooby Doo even to this day. Um, but yeah, the uh, but at the time in the '60s when uh, when this show was new, the kids were still drawn back into the world of rationality. Right? Yeah. Um, there was no sort of um, allowance for actual magic. It was all some rational explanation. Um, some there's a very kind of 
1950s mindset really behind all of that. Um, um, But and then we we do move into the 80s, though, uh, at, at some point. And I think that this is really because this is where it and Stranger Things take their inspiration. Um, what is it about the eighties? Do you think, what is it about Stephen King? Let's talk about him. Yeah. I mean, horror in general was huge in the eighties. I mean, you know, Stephen King kind of launched that. We also have, you know, the Friday, the 13th franchise and the Freddy Krueger movies. And just you know, in film in general, there was this huge, huge burst of that. I, I don't know why that caught on right then. I, you know, it's. Well, Stephen King was like, I mean, his books had been, popular before then right and so he'd sort of set i think some of the groundwork but i'm also as you were talking thinking like halloween is released in Mm -hmm. 77 i think late 70s 78 and um it's that's you have teenagers being slaughtered right uh and and so uh not in gruesome ways in that particular movie but that genre the slasher film becomes increasingly gruesome uh, as it develops and so you do have kind of the permission i guess to put teenagers teenagers at this point uh in peril right and i guess with that precedent set it, it becomes more permissible to uh to allow um uh, little children actually to be in yeah. peril. So, well, and in to go to the other part of this whole convention, comics. You know, the the EC comics, the late fifties, yeah. early nineteen, late forties, early fifties, uh, Tales from the Crypt. Some of them were incredibly graphic and violent. Uh, the Senate subcommittee hearings weren't wrong in <laughs> in accusing them of being incredibly violent and and graphic. Um, but then that went away because of the comics code, and in comics anyway, that sort of was dampened mm-hmm. in the seventies. We started seeing the return of some of that. Some of the magazines had that there were always, you know, like the worn magazines, eerie and creepy. So you had those stories appearing. My generation grew up seeing that stuff, reading that stuff, art and comics and pop culture reflecting the real world. What started happening in this seventies in a way that we hadn't seen before. Son of Sam, yeah. Jonestown. We yeah. started getting serial killers. We started getting these you know, real life evil people committing mass murders not that that never happened before but through the media it became a thing uh, and i think it was just in the public consciousness and a lot more we were more afraid to go outside yeah and i think horror became more of a successful genre because it was reflecting our genuine fears in our culture at that time and it becomes a more necessary genre i would say because yeah. it has this uh sort of purgation to it there's this a sense of this is helping us deal with these nameless fears that we uh, have experienced in our world I, I, as as a music fan uh alice cooper has been on record for years <laughs> as saying you know, his his entire stage show his his persona it's that idea of shining a light on the dark underbelly of american culture yeah uh in in a safe and fun way yeah. Uh, let's, let's, let's look at this through these books, through these comics, through these cartoons in a way that's much safer than actually being, you know, captured by a serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. And my, you know, my generation, we had the cramps. I don't know if yeah. you guys uh, yes. <laughs> watched the cramps. They were amazing. Uh, a strange rockabilly punk band dressed in horror best, movie costumes. Yeah. Best concerts yeah. ever saw in my yeah. life. <laughs> They're awesome. Um, and, uh, but so as you were talking though, it also occurs to me that, um, there's something, going on in the 70s like you said with um just sort of current events the world becomes more violent 
postmodern and dangerous. I just watched the first episode of Mindhunter, which has just been released yeah. on Netflix. Which is it, filmed mostly around Pittsburgh. Yeah, it is. I was just going to say, it's sort of a lot of it was filmed here uh, or in this area. And the kind of premise of that first episode is there are people trying to understand the minds of ser- serial killers. That's sort of the, uh, it's, it's the FBI in general. And th- people are flummoxed at the way the world has changed. And Son of Sam is actually one of the, the cases that they're looking at. And people don't understand the motivation for crime anymore. It's no longer rational. It's no longer economic, right? People kill people because a dog told them to do it, right? And so yeah. Um, yeah. that is in the world, right? And so it, it's perfectly natural then, I think, that what we see in the 80s with children and horror, that that's what would arise. The irrationality is given form through these monsters in the in the books, yeah. Yeah, and in our real world as well. Uh, well, let's get to the actual uh, stories. Let's start with It, I suppose, uh, since Stranger Things is a derivative uh, of It. Um, did you see the new movie? I did, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so what are your thoughts on how It it changes a lot of the plot mm-hmm. uh, and it changes the setting. It, the original children stories of It take place in the 50s, and uh, this movie, I think rather cannily, moves that to the 80s because of Stranger Things, I would argue. But um, yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. And I think it's also it's moved to the 80s because more people can remember being children in the 80s than in the 1950s. It's been a long time since I read the book. I, I've read pretty much all of Stephen King's thing books. Uh, it is one of my favorites, and I think because of the complexity of it, the number of characters, uh, all the the ideas and tropes that play out in it. Um, the way the movie changed things, in the book we get, there are two stories taking place. There are the kids in the 1950s and the adults in the 1980s. Right. And they're, you know, it's the same, same characters. We're just seeing them in two different time periods. And in the book, we jump back and forth between the past and what was then the present and see things play out. Where they're doing two movies which split those two things. Uh, the first movie is just the kids. Yeah. I think that makes sense for, it, for the movie. It really I think does. that yeah. works. Um, at the same time, I think it loses something in that in the book you're able to see here's the – Here's the 12-year-old version of this character. Here's the 30-some-year-old version of this character. And the neat resonance they were able to play off of who these kids became. Um, and hopefully we'll get some of that in the second movie. Um, but, yeah, it's also, aside from them just being kids, that idea of the Losers Club. They're all the outsiders. You know, every one of them is – and you brought this up in one of the emails, and I think this is an important thing to talk about, is – their day-to-day horror of high school isn't a clown in the sewer. It's this guy who's going to beat them up and take their lunch money. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, they're all they carve things into their stomachs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, you know, they're, they have very real fears because they are the outsiders and the losers. And I, I think that's an appealing concept. I, I, I wonder who, you know, like the, the bad guys, the, the bad teens in these movies and everything. I mean, the X-Men appeals because it's the outsiders. You know, it, it's, there's that whole thing. We all feel like outsiders. Here's a metaphor that at some point in our life, we have felt ostracized or an outsider or like we don't fit in. And the X-Men and the Losers Club and it and all this stuff, I think, appeals to that. But all those books also have the people who are, they're the insiders. They are the yeah. football stars and whatever. And, and like, okay, how come those people aren't making movies about how good their life was <laughs> when they were teens? Uh, it's, it's all the losers who go on to make the movies and stuff. But I think that's an important part of it. It's these people who feel already outside of their community. Yeah. And, and what makes these movies works, it isn't just like lining children up for slaughter, right? That's, that would not make an entertaining movie for me, <laughs> at least. Cause I'm a moral person, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, but also, uh, I, it's a heartwarming coming together uh, narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And so there is some sense of children being able to kind of cross 
you know, racial and, and socioeconomic divides, uh, to come together for the common good, uh, for the downtrodden, right? In a way that adult society doesn't allow for, uh, in these, in yeah. these stories. But yeah, um, the, if that we were going to spoil the movie, it, uh, I guess cover your ears if you haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> but the, uh, um, the opening scene is really the worst scene in the movie, right? Uh, this is when Georgie, uh, gets, his arm ripped off in the sewer, right? Uh, as he's uh, looking for his little boat. And so what, what is it about putting, I mean, depicting that kind of violence against children? It's so shocking to us. Well, yeah. Just psychologically, we protect children. You know, that's you know, violence against a child, I think resonates with most people. And it's such a no, no though. I yeah. Mean, like, yeah. Even to this day, people don't depict that kind of violence against children, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's usually hidden. Um, it's going to be the most shocking thing. Yeah. yeah. And for, but Stephen King makes it happen. When I read, um, Pet Cemetery, like the, that whole movie is, or that whole book, excuse me, um, I guess the movie too, yeah. but is, uh, about the loss of a child in this really horrible, violent way, right? And it's utterly, narrated for us he makes us kind of sort of suffer through the loss of a child uh in, in ways that people most people are not brave enough mm-hmm. to do artistically right um and for, for whatever reason it works for him uh, do you have any idea you're an artist yeah. do you have any ideas uh, I, I do some of that in here uh, I, I it is shocking i think that that thing of if if a writer or creator is trying to engage our empathy and compassion you know losing a child is i haven't but you know that's has to be one of the most horrific things that can happen to any family. So talk about most primal fear that a writer can, and let's use the word manipulate. You yeah. know, it's emotional manipulation. I am trying to make you feel compassionate for these characters. Losing a child is something everyone fears. So let's, you know, any fiction, there's that, that underlying idea of building compassion for your characters and what they are, under, are undergoing, trying to make you feel what they're feeling. And if you can tap into very real, emotional depths and in horror in particular what are we afraid of yeah uh, it works yeah um let's flash forward to stranger things so you can uh, if you don't <laughs> if you're not seeing that we'll talk about it as well what makes that show work I, it's really popular i went into it with these great expectations and was not disappointed yeah. i thought that it it was one of those few I'm, times i'm that surprised it, it caught on as much as it did because it's certainly right up my alley in terms yeah. of stuff i'm interested in i'm surprised it's become the thing it has um it was just really well done. I, you know, yeah. Like, it's hard to say what is the thing that makes anything popular at any given moment. I, I think there's a lot going on in the world right now that people are afraid of. I think we're probably going to see more horror movies in the next few years. It, um, well, one addition, I guess, that Stranger Things brings into this is the kind of conspiracy theory world. Um, you've got a lot yes. of this... Uh, which I know way too much about as well. Um, but uh, go ahead. I know I'm glad you brought that up because I was having that conversation with somebody else recently. The whole government as the bad guy conspiracy theory cover up. That's kind of a new thing in horror. There weren't a lot of werewolf stories in the middle ages where they were worried about the government. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, our fears of that type of control and, and in the conversation, Mav, was that with you or did I talk about Marcel with this? Um, I, you're the two I talk to him most about, but I like, at what point did that start showing up in our fictions and Kennedy assassination? Is that the first place where as a whole, we questioned the role of the government and whether things, whether or not they were telling us the truth? Yeah. I mean, conspiracy theories, I think you can trace many of them back to the, the, mm-hmm. the kind of the assassination. Um, this one, I mean, stranger things though deals with some very specific ones. There's this conspiracy about, uh, I think it's the Montauk project, which, uh, the government was supposedly, um, 
experimenting on children to mm-hmm. tap into supernatural abilities that children have. And it was sort of a CIA thing, psyops. Um, the, uh, and again, I'm interested in conspiracy theories because I think they're a very fascinating yeah. version of storytelling. Well, like with Stephen uh, King and Spielberg, Stephen King's Firestarter. We have the government trying to yes. get Charlie. Charlie has, is a pyrotechnic. She can create fire with her mind and the government is trying to capture her and weaponize her when she's four years old. Exactly. Um, and and I, I think that the fact that their children is important because that's if they are the at the age in which they're still they have access to the supernatural, to to metaphysical powers that the rational world has has dissolved away. Right. Mm-hmm. And so um, these conspiracy theories, I think, uh, often do revolve around children. Um, the alien abduction versions of these things are the same same thing. We right? have we have the government coming to Elliot's house and ET. Yes. <laughs> you know? So so the, yeah, that that imagery is throughout all of that stuff in the eighties. I guess that's a good point. And so this, the Stranger Things did not necessarily invent or import that um, outside of the art that it's it's referencing yeah. as well. Because yeah, there was a big part of eighties eighties uh, um, tropes as well with children. So um, yeah, and so. Let's talk about the 80s. I think that what makes Stranger Things so like effective is its uh, ability to access our nostalgia for this time that was really not that great, frankly. <laughs> but, but we all sort of miss the 80s. Uh, and so, like every 20 years, we miss what took place 20 years I, ago. I, maybe that's as simple as that. But but how does it work in constructing nostalgia? Aesthetically, yeah. Right? I, well, and I, I know for myself, I'm a little older than you are, so I, I was 18 during that time. But you know, we see the kids playing Dungeons and Dragons in the basement. Did that? <laughs> uh, you know, they, they talk about comic books. Still doing that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the music they're playing—that's a big piece of it. Once again, as a music fan, we have the older brother, you know, play turning his bro- little brother on to, to Joy Division and, and the stuff. The and Clash, I believe. Yeah, is in there. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so you know, it just that soundtrack, Guardians of the Galaxy. That movie came out with a 1970 soundtrack, and people are listening to Fox on the Run for the first time in 40 <laughs> years, and which makes me happy because I had the single when I was 12. Uh, <laughs> but I, you know, it's the use of all those things, those signifiers, and it's funny because this is the part I find weird about is we have people who are 20 who now feel nostalgic for the stuff that they weren't even alive for. Yeah. Like, here's this thing I missed. And you, growing up as a teen in the 70s, we had happy days on TV. You know, there was this huge 1950s nostalgia thing. Many years ago, I had a friend who, who had a, a 70s theme party, and I wanted to go dressed as the 70s version of, of nostalgia for the 50s, just <laughs> as a meta thing, because that was a huge part of what was happening in the 70s. Oh, talk about explaining that costume to, <laughs> to, to normies out <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, so, um. I mean, Fon, Fonzie was one of the biggest <laughs> icons in 1976, and he's from 1956. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah that's totally true. That um, Well... Frederick Jameson has a whole thing about nostalgia. If you're interested in this, in, in, in postmodernism, uh, so go ahead and back and read that um, <laughs> if you can plow through it. The but the um, uh, the idea of nostalgia for the '80s though is interesting, uh, and I wonder. So this is my own kind of reading on it, and I just want to run it by you. I suppose we are in a world in which our technologies ha- are kind of own us, right? And we're in a world in which. Um, people are, because of our media, I think people are afraid of violence against children, even though statistically that's like down, right? Um, but we see it emphasized to such a degree in our media that we think it's everywhere, right? And so I feel like there's something about our world today that has, um, 
so like boxed us in like you know what i'm saying and there was something about the 80s as i said before and in all these shows they're riding their bikes out to giant pits and you know what i'm and saying and well yeah I, and i think yes it the 80s was you know and this is an overstatement the last pre-technological era in yeah. that not everybody had a laptop you right. didn't have a computer in your pocket 24 7 no you know you there were we we had max at my grad school that my the computer in my pocket outpowers by a billion sure uh, but you you got together and played D in your basement because you couldn't play xbox with your friends in your basement or online with somebody in california right you know so yeah it, it's it feels like a more innocent time because of it feels absolutely primitive in terms of technology and therefore freer. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so we see children that are free, right. To be imaginative and, and to do terrible things to each other and, and to, uh, and, and so, but there's something I think that is attractive about the eighties because it, it's free from all of the kind of, uh, burdens that we've taken upon ourselves in the name of progress. Right. This is sort of almost like a, uh, not, it's not pre-modern, but it, it has that sort of uh, that sense to it, and so I, I think that it's interesting that horror, that the this rejuvenation of children horror narratives are all kind of set in like retroactively created '80s um, uh, settings, and so mm-hmm. I think that um, there's something about that particular era that stands against ours, and, and I think <laughs> I, I think there's also a very practical the people who are currently writing books and making movies and making TV shows grew up then. And going to them. Yeah. So, so yeah. So, yeah. you know, the people who are creating it are bringing in the things that they grew up with. And in 20 years, that's going to change yeah. based on, on what people grew up with. I mean, if you grew up reading comics and now you can make a multi-million dollar movie, I'm going to make Guardians of the Galaxy or, or whatever because this is the stuff I love growing up. And technology is caught up to you can actually effectively yeah. film uh, narratives like that. Yeah, right? it's caught up with Jack Kirby's imagination. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah um, we, and, and there's a, there's also, you know, we all tend to romanticize, you know, that's the essence of nostalgia. We romanticize this era. It sounds like, you know, we grew up then like, oh, you kids, it was so much better back then. And I don't necessarily think that's what we're saying. It was better for us because we were young and healthier. And, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't ache when I woke up in the morning. <laughs> um, but, you know, in, in the 70s and 80s, we were romanticizing the 50s. Never mind, you know, racism and, and, you know, civil rights movement and all that sort of thing. So, yes, that's, that is, that's what happy days always drove me yeah. crazy. Even when I was a kid, that drove me crazy about happy days, actually. I've always been a jerk, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I hate happy days. Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, we can romanticize the 80s and never mention Iran Contra, you know? Right. So. Yeah, totally. Right. right. Um, the, uh, uh, yeah. And the other thing, though, is when I, you know, when I was a kid, um, I would watch stuff that now as a parent of two small children, like I, I get, I get kind of like, uh, oh my gosh, what did I just let my kid watch? Cause they've been watching like the Goonies. If you watch the Goonies, it's like nothing but an extended penis joke, right? I mean, the whole thing. <laughs> extended it, it, penis. I get it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Paging Dr. Freud. Right? Uh, so no, uh, but, it, the, but that's a, uh, but that it's, it's filthy. Like it, not, not even it just barely below the, the, it's barely subtextual. It's barely below the surface. Filthy. And we watch that kind of stuff, right? Um, we watched, Shows with language uh, and, and everything, and now children's entertainment is so san. Even their entertainment is sanitized, uh, and, and so it, it, there's no like 
objectionable material except for the vacant ideologies that they get taught, right? Um, and so, but there's nothing offensive about it. And so I feel like, I just feel like there's something hollow about uh, contemporary children's entertainment that the 80s, I think was better. I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Well, and, and, and I, I don't have a good sense of that. I don't watch, you know, I don't have kids, so I, I'm not seeing a lot of the stuff. The, a lot of the like cartoons and things I'm aware of is more of the adult swim stuff. Yeah. Like Rick and Morty, I think is probably, I, you know, we sell a ton of the comics and I'm talking to people who are fans of it. I'm thinking it's pretty subversive. Yeah. But it's also, I think out of the gate made for an adult audience as opposed to your yeah. Saturday morning fair for your kids. Yeah. I wish you hadn't mentioned that. Some listener keeps asking me to do a show about it and I've never watched it. And so it's going to put the pressure on me here. So, um, <laughs> but I, I, I do need to, but, um, all right. I want to, uh, we, I want to save time for some questions here from the audience as well. Um, so I do want to talk about your book. Uh, okay. Because it is, uh, it's a complete ripoff of Stephen <laughs> King. And, uh, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's definitely influenced by all these things we're talking about. Um, King of Summer, uh, it's kids in an indeterminate time period. I never pick a date. This originally came out in 2002, so I was writing it in the late 90s. Um, kids are on bikes riding out to the woods and, and playing. And they, I do mention video games, but I'm pretty vague in terms of what system they're using or anything. Mm-hmm. So it's contemporary enough that they have that. Um, because of when I was writing it, there weren't cell phones. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's this ancient evil in the lake that's coming back and they're the ones who see it and have to combat it uh so it's it's that story it's that trope some of the worst people in the book are the slightly older teens who do horrible things to these kids um i made a conscious decision no adults appear in this book at all except for one and he is the remnant of somebody who confronted this back in the 1940s when he was a child very it like and he and he's currently (laughs) in a home and a victim of Alzheimer's, so he is very childlike. But we see no other adults in this entire story, and that was a very conscious decision of mine. Their reference, we know they have parents, yeah, but we never actually see conversations with them. And I really wanted this to be, this is the world these kids live in. And in the summer when they're on their bikes, yeah, mom and dad are home someplace. Um, And they do, they they confront pretty awful things. And this was... You, know, I, I suppose young adult, but I, I do horrible things to these kids. My, my editor, you, that thing you're talking about, you know, violence against children. Uh, on the page, on um, the page. I, there, there is a scene about halfway through the book. It was an important scene where one of the youngest and most innocent of my characters, spoiler, is killed. Uh, the woman who was editing me at the time on her notes, she, just you know wrote in the corner says you're a terrible terrible man <laughs> um, but it was important for the plot um so i didn't shy away from that uh the kids are all early teens you know 12 13 14 years old and they are a variety of of types i have some who are incredibly innocent i have some who are much more worldly because of of the the lives they lead they are you know like any writer, they are based on people I know, not specifically, but types of people I've known in my life. There is uh, the character of Vivian, who in the course of writing it became my favorite character in the book and in the reviews I've received. She's the one that most people respond to. Um, Vivian is 13 and Vivian is a bad girl because mm-hmm. of circumstances. Uh, and you know, I knew people like this. And I, even when I was writing it, there was how do I portray this? And I went to great lengths not to be prurient about it or, or show anything overtly, but you know, Vivian smokes and drinks and has sex, and and I very overtly deal with her personal rela- reactions to these things as well because they're not all positive. Uh, it, it comp- you know, um, 
complicates her self-worth. Yeah. Um, there, I know there, there's a lot of people who are relieved that there's a certain scene from the novel it that yes. didn't make it into yeah. the <laughs> didn't make it into yeah. the film because it, it does similar things with children and, and sexuality, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and, and I guess so. I, when I before I, I have yeah. a question about like sort of the moral purpose for these things, but um, th- you have it seems to me this is like a, a bit of the King Arthur legend involved. Ab- in this absolutely, as well. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. There is nothing overt. I never at any point in this book say this is a retelling of the King Arthur story. It's a retelling of the King Arthur story. Uh, <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yeah, a little bit. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the King Arthur stuff. Uh, one of the other books I have is my overt take on the King Arthur story that I wrote after this, but. I dealt with the King Arthur characters very much as archetypes. So there is, for the most part, a one-to-one correspondence between these characters and characters from King Arthur mythology. There are some that are, are combinations. Uh, and it just, I, I don't, looking back, this is like going back 20 years of my life from my first had the ideas for this. I just, let's play out. I, I see a lot of the, the story arcs in the Arthur mythology as being universal. I think we still talk about King Arthur and do takes on that. 1500 years later because they still speak to some very human things in in terms of character in terms of relationships in terms of the ideas of duty and responsibility and i just thought let's take some of those ideas and make them kids in the 1990s or whenever this is set and and see where that goes uh i was talking about the the pueri turnus uh the parsifal character very much I, i have a kid who lives in the woods with his family who is culturally ignorant compared to the other other kids in the book yeah. uh, and and he plays that role very much so he's also the one who has much more access to actual magic mm. the holy fool yeah. there's a tradition yeah. of this yeah um, yeah in uh, another episode i recorded about the tarkovsky film andre rublev um there's a character who's the holy fool yeah. right and so this this seems like that um um so let me make a, a theoretical reading of your of your work here without having read it, because uh, <laughs> that's, that's how it works in academia. In scarecrow, <laughs> we never actually read anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as we were talking about at the beginning, uh, there's something about the the fairy tales that are kind of pre-modern, right? And in the pre-modern world bleakness happens, right? Uh, and and the, pe- the real people deal with devils and and, and horrible things, right? Modernity has tried to sort of elide that. Stephen King brings that back and into his work. And I, when you're going to King Arthur, you're going to a pre-modern world, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you're doing a very similar thing. It's not uh, fairy tales per se, but it is a very kind of mythological, um, again, pre-modern narrative that allows you to incorporate things that modernity doesn't like, right? Uh, and so I think that in, in some ways, there's, that's a really interesting um, connection between what you're doing and what King did. Um, so that's my end of my theorizing. But, um, um, I do want to make one more point, though. Um, so I, I have to ask about this because of the nature of my show and my brain. But uh, I don't think that there's anything necessarily noble about performing violence on children through fiction. I mean, it's never in real life, there's nothing noble about it ever, right? But um, but in fiction. Um, just for the sake of titillation or scares, right? I feel like there should, there needs to be a moral purpose to it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like, what do you think? Yeah, no, that? no, I, I, I agree. I mean, if it's purely for, for shock value or, or let's say prurient interest, then, then don't do it. Um, I, you know, the story guides me when I write. And I, I think that's true of, of any author or writer. I mean, when you get to Hollywood, you have a room full of writers and test audiences and things get complicated. I, I think, you know, my basic rule when I'm writing anything is 
where do the story where does the story take me what does the story need where do the characters take me what do they say and do when i'm really into writing the characters do thing as i'm writing that i never had any idea they were going to do um vivian being a, a prime example of that she was created to be the best friend and bad influence on one of my main characters okay and over the course of writing this book vivian just wouldn't shut up <laughs> just kept making me write her and went in directions i never intended for this character and, and became my favorite and say pretty much the favorite of everybody who's read it and yeah. i just i have to listen to that and that involved her being engaged in some activities that probably aren't appropriate for 13 year olds I knew that 13 year old back in the day. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I knew those people. Um, so yeah, it's in, in the, you know, violent things happen. Say there's the, the kid who dies, but it was that point in that story where the story required something to move things forward to escalate the tension, to escalate the drama, to show that there are consequences. If we don't do something, there will be more of this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the, the reality, right? I mean, there's a way in, which our world kind of paints over tragedy and injustice, right? And there is a moral uh, work being done when you stick that in someone's face and make them mm -hmm. see it, right? Yeah. And what better way to do that than the kind of sacrosanct rule against harming children um, when we do that? I mean, it's the picture of the little drowned boy, the Syrian drowned boy, right? Uh, in the, in the, uh, the, the refugee crisis. I mean, that was put out there publicly to make us feel something and it, and it offended our sensibilities, right? But it did moral work. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that in a lot of ways, Stephen King, and it sounds like you were doing the same thing. So um, oh. any last thoughts, Wayne? No. Or we take some questions? Yeah, let's take some questions. All right. Uh, thank you, Wayne. Uh, yeah. Questions from the audience. Yeah. yeah um, so first I want to say that fascinating conversation and in terms of but, you know, Gen X generational narcissism. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, and we didn't have to kill a child to do it. Yeah, I know, right? Uh, so, it's maybe less of a question. I just want to throw two things out there to sort of muddy the waters. And I just want to hear you two riff yeah. on them. Um, one is, I think, you know, speaking of the 80s, uh, the satanic panic. Yes. It was a yeah, moment yeah. where pop culture, fear, and horror became public policy, yes. right? The FBI spent hundreds of millions of dollars searching out satanic ritual abuse. Mm -hmm. Backmasking on records, you know, like, yes. yeah, the you know, ACDC records were sending us all to hell because they were yeah. you know, telling us that to go kill children. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Tipper Gore of the PMRC. Yeah. yeah. And so I think thinking about that happening in the 80s, and the other thing is thinking about sort of the political change that was happening with Reagan in the 80s? And is some of that nostalgia also maybe a kind of looking back at this like political choice that we made as a culture in this crossroads? And maybe is it wondering, like, did we take the right fork? Is that maybe part of this 80s nostalgia too? Or I just want to throw both yeah. those things out there and listen to you both riff on Yeah. Them. It's fascinating. Go ahead. No, I no, I think those are great points. I hadn't thought of the satanic panic thing. I I remember that. I say I while I'm older than you, I I'm I'm the vanguard of Gen X, absolutely, much more than I am baby boomer. Um, I remember I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania, like 50 miles south of Pittsburgh. It's that lower corner. Uh, it's West Virginia essentially, except for the actual state line. I remember in the late 70s, early 80s talk of you know, on the news that these satanic rituals that this stuff that had been found in the woods in ohio and and the, you know everybody's frightened and they're doing these rituals 
what I find fascinating now, if you go see the movie or read the comic book about Jeffrey Dahmer, Dahmer killed some people in the woods and, and left some things out there. And I really believe what I heard on the news was them discovering the remnants of, of Jeffrey Dahmer's stuff because that took place around Youngstown. Um, so, but yes, that, that was a thing. Like the, 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 the Moonies were out there in airports trying to, <laughs> trying to get you the, the, Hari Hari Krishna had built a temple in Moundsville, you know, a temple of gold that's still there that you can go visit. And Hari Krishna, you know, at you know, Islam or not Islam, you know, Hinduism is is a world religion. And but at that time, they were weird cult members who were coming to your house. Um, so yeah, I, think that's I accidentally like applied for a job with the Moonies um, yeah. once, and they called me for an interview. Um, it was uh, gosh, what was it called? It was called uh, oh, geez, some sort of theological seminary and i thought it was the one that's associated with columbia um because it sounds the same <laughs> and so when they called me for an interview i looked them up i'm like oh crap and so uh i, I canceled that one but um that was years ago um but uh the satanic panic did come to my mind i mean i grew up sort of as a, as a in a church uh, environment as well and so that was heightened i think in my in my kind of cultural experience as well and i the thing about backward masking uh this is all definitely part and so to me popular culture was drawing on so alice cooper you brought out alice cooper he's drawing on these kind of satanic imageries and the rolling stones with that terrible album they made right um um, her majesty satanic whatever so um uh they're drawing on it because it's scary uh, and and it's it sells kind of you know come, it's come like to my, come to my Bowie presentation later because I talk about this a lot. Oh good. <laughs> it, it, today it's like when uh, Taylor Swift or Kanye West puts Illuminati imagery yeah. in their albums. It's because that's what kids are buying, right? And so and so in, in some sense you do have uh, popular culture like selling a product that the grownups then take seriously, yeah. right? Uh, and then the grownups make it seem like this is actually uh, causing a big problem. The Tipper Gore thing is particularly interesting. If you go on YouTube and find her debating um, Jello Biafra from uh, um, <laughs> Dead Kennedys, brilliant. it's hilarious. He's so smart yeah. in, in his rebuttal to yeah. all that. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. That's also part of this milieu that you one, get. One um, of my favorite responses from a, a musician to the whole PMRC rating albums, whatever, labeling albums was Iggy Pop, who put out an album with a label on it and said, warning, this is an Iggy Pop album. <laughs> <laughs> So, but no, they, I mean, all of those religious cults and, and some of them were cults. They were, you know, let's say you know, world religions, but yeah. they were, it felt like they were actively recruiting in the middle of that satanic panic, you know, yeah. from, from an American Judeo Christian point of view, all of these cults are non-Christian and therefore satanic. And they were trying to recruit your children. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I think that fear ties in that you are going to lose your children to and, the satanic cult. And the Reagan thing, um, like I, so, just knows probably where I'm going here. But um, so to me, that is when neoliberalism begins. Right? I mean, yeah. Reagan and Thatcher, and we live in the world that they kind of set, they drew the lines for kind of, you know, yeah. and I think that all of the the burdens that I was talking about before that we face, the restrictions, the tracking, all of the kind of uh, things that drive us crazy about surveillance in our normal world has its roots there. And I think in some ways it's a really natural place to go back and reinvestigate that time. Uh, so I, I haven't thought about that in much depth, but I think that that's a really good point. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to ask, this is another kind of cultural touchstone, kind of like what Matt was doing. I, as you're, you were talking, I was thinking about uh, Adam Walsh and the whole... Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. You mentioned the word 
vanished just now as well. Yes. And it made me think of that too. And I'm wondering if you just wanted to respond to that, the notion of, um, for those of you who are younger, at, at the John Walsh, who does the America's Most Wanted TV show, his son was inducted, it was in the 80s, and I think that was a sort of watershed moment in terms of parental awareness of child abduction and so on and so forth. And I think that plays into these narratives. And so I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm also interested in, since you two are both such Stephen King fans, how his novella, The Body, might relate to yeah. uh, it, if at all. I'm just curious. Stand by me, right? Yeah. These kids the, that, yeah. yeah. I, I think it's the same idea minus all the supernatural elements. Yeah. Because I, I, it's also one of my favorites for many of the same reasons. It's. Do you know which one came first? I think the body did. The, okay. Yeah, it was it was in the same collection as Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, the body's in the same book as Shawshank. Uh, and it was. The body comes first. Oh, wait. The movie Stand by Me definitely comes before the miniseries It. Yeah. I, I think I, the body came before. I think so. Before It too, but I'm not positive with the books. Because yeah. it seems like a warm up to me. Yeah. It, yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's kind of. Yeah, very much so. Because yeah, you, you do, you have the same types of characters. Well, I mean, the the point of view character, if there is one, it is Bill, who grows up to be a successful writer. The main character in the body, Stand By Me, is the one who is a writer in school. So, yeah. Who can tell the and, story. And, and yeah, you have, you, you have uh, is it Ralphie in the body, who is the loud mouth and talks too much, and, and Richie in, in... So, yeah, so they're very definite. We have the fat kid in both. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and I think you certainly yeah. went went there. And it, of course it, the the horror in in the body is just the body. Yeah. It's nothing that happens to the children. So and, it and, kind of inverts that in And it's in, it's yeah. the thing that is similar is the older teenagers who are an actual physical threat to them. So you get that in both books. I, mean, I have some of that in mind too. <laughs> Your other question remind me I uh was about um John, John Oh, John Walsh. John Walsh. Yeah. Adam Walsh. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was uh, obviously that's that's an example, though, of a single horrible event. Right. But because of our media sphere gets blown up to be gigantic just because it's so in our presence. And I think it does lead to things like the kind of panics that we get that lead to these. You know, we got to san- sanitize everything. And now we've been so sanitized that we're, I think, emotionally crippled as people. Right. It's like the if you use too much of that hand bacteria stuff right all you're doing is creating stronger viruses by doing this right but everybody's so sick of getting a sniffle that they can't uh they can't i I think that's the important importance of horror it is you know the alice cooper thing let's shine a light on this let's do this in a way that we can do it safely and playfully but still talk about these issues yeah and i'm a good parent this is people are going to think i'm a terrible person Uh, i think i'm pretty good his kids are playing in the sewer right now yeah they're in the sewer getting all the germs they need right um But um, also what Wayne was, was speaking about, I think one of the things to consider is not just that these books are about you know the horrors on children. You know, you, you kill you kill a child. That's something that we that is very taboo. Um, the sex of the children very taboo. But King is writing as an adult and very much with I'll, I'll go with Carrie as as an example because it's very very explicit. Um, and you also mentioned Halloween, um, which is not kidding, but that a lot of the horror, horror novels, the body absolutely, they're not just 
about protecting children, because that's one of his primary issues. It really is. I know it doesn't seem like it sometimes because horrible things happen yeah. to the children, but a lot of the stories really are we're not protecting the children. But he's also very much invested, it seems to me, and I know horror is in general, in the fears, you know, sort of the post-edible fear as an adult that the children are going to kill us. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's what Carrie is essentially about. Yeah. Carrie, ignoring all the, uh, all the supernatural stuff, is essentially, oh my God, this girl's going to have her period, become a woman, and kill us all. That's, that's the fear of Carrie. Yeah. Uh, and that's the fear of it as well. It's, uh, you know, that scene, you know, the, tra- you know, the, the sexual scene mm-hmm. in it is the marker of, here's where we stop being kids, here we start yeah. being adults. And in the second half of that book, they're vicious murderers. I mean, they're they're afraid, but it, but they're different people, and they become, you know, they become adults at a at a younger point. So there's a there's like I think there's a very real fear in all of his work. Stand by me. It's like growing up doesn't just make us safer because we're safer. It also means that we're getting to a point where we have to fear our children, and that's. One that's what happens in the 80s. That's what your, yeah. that's what your, like, why, why are we afraid of Dungeons and Dragons and the Satanic Panic and everything Jack Chick ever wrote and everything Kevin Gore did? Like, we're afraid of our children. Well, one, of, one of the themes in, in some of the Arthurian stuff I've read is that, you know, the, the whole, the king is dead, long live the king. Every generation is replaced by the one that comes after. We're nostalgic for the 80s because you millennials are going to ruin everything. <laughs> And I don't really believe that, but I, you see that in every generation. There's a certain amount of we are in our prime, and someday you will be, and I'm going to be wearing depends, and I that scares me. <laughs> yeah, and that uh, goes back to the 50s, though. I'm thinking of a movie, children or 60s, Children of the Damned. Um, yeah. That's explicitly that movie is about children who are like destroying the adults, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and they're not at all even like. Um, uh, sympathetic figures. They're just literally evil zombie robot killers with crazy eyes, right? And so, um, yeah, that is definitely in there. This, this fear of being replaced, um, by other things. Now, when you're talking about the young girl and, I mean, there's also like a a fear of femininity in here as well. Uh, And we can go into, I was just, I recorded a show on the Wolfman last night. And so I'm going to repeat myself a little bit for the listener, but uh, for this audience, they haven't heard this, but uh, if you go into like Kristeva and um, feminist psychoanalytic sort of criticism, nature is just generally coded as feminine, right? And there's a great book by Barbara Creed called The Monstrous Feminine that kind of shows this in horror films and how, Monsters are usually kind of even even if they're subtly coded, they're they're coded as feminine um, because there's something associated them with nature, which is against civilization, which is where we all go after we die. Sort of Alan Moore's werewolf story in Saga of the Swamp Thing is straight up that totally. It's not King, but that moves up. So if you you ever read Carol Carol Clover, Living in Chainsaw, yeah, the monster is feminine. Up until a point, because the up, the veil of tradition, the you know, the male hero has to go and slay the. Nat- I mean, Grendel is male; his mother's not. It doesn't matter. It's still a, it's it's man overcoming nature, and so that makes it feminine. Up until Halloween, which sort of with the creation of the final girl trope, you end up with a very different character, where Halloween through Scream today through Eleven and Stranger Things. The girl wins, 
she it's a very specific girl. It's a you know but for some some you know some deconstruction of the trope and cabin in the woods and things like that. It is a virgin who is um, saved by her purity and therefore not overcome by the you know demon sexuality of Michael Myers. There's a lot to it, but it very much is a there's there's this moment in '78, whenever Halloween came out, mm-hmm. that extends through King, where it just sort of changes the idea of what is female, at least in that genre. And those monsters die by being feminized, right? I mean, they are sort of uh, the victim of the phallic knife at that point, yeah. right? Clover's uh, yeah. argument is that uh, they that um, Lee Curtis's character, Glory, Glory, and Michael change positions in that movie, wherein she becomes the aggressor by stabbing him. The Arthurian stuff, Morgan Le Fay, you know, and and the whole the 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 male sword of Excalibur and the the witch's cauldron <laughs> symbols. <laughs> yeah, really great stuff, and it's interesting. I just rewatched Halloween this week, actually, and um, the the kinds of implement the kind of weapons that Laurie uses on Michael. There's three. There's knitting needles. There's a coat hanger, which is really interesting in the seventies. Uh, and then there's also, um, the knife at the end and then he gets shot and then he's still not dead. Right. But, uh, there's like that progression of, of phalluses that she uses <laughs> against him that I think is really interesting. Um, we are about out yeah. of time. You guys were awesome audience. Yeah. Great questions. Um, we'll be glad to stick around um, off air and, uh, and answer any more. Uh, Wayne, uh, thanks again. Yeah. Can you real quickly tell me uh, or us where you can I've, find if this If you book? go to Amazon and type in Wayne Wise, uh, I have an Amazon page with this and several other things available. Um, and I'll put if, it, if you just Google my name, I have a blog. I'm really easy to find. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll put it in the show notes for make it easy. So thank you, everybody. Uh, yeah, enjoy the you. 2017 Mount Aloysius Charity Con. Woo! Thank you.